welcome to Soccer Morning. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday. Welcome into Soccer Morning right here on Backheel.com. It is good to be back after uh, what turned out to be a pretty, pretty long, pretty hectic weekend. Could be relaxing, depending on how you handled it yourself. Not relaxing for certain teams in England. Not relaxing... Uh, for the people involved in world football governance, if only because we had a major event on Friday, which we're going to cover in depth here today on Soccer Morning. Looking very, looking forward very much to a conversation with our friend Simon Evans from Reuters. He'll join the show at 9.40 a.m. Eastern to go over everything that happened in Zurich on Friday. Ahead of, of Simon Evans, our friend Christian Hennage joins us at 9.10 to talk about the English situation, and that is the Premier League, clearly. We dive in here with the biggest news over the last four days. Johnny Infantino, elected FIFA president at the FIFA Extraordinary Congress on Friday in Zurich. Infantino, two rounds of voting to secure the victory. Former UEFA General Secretary follows Sepp Blatter into a position whose role is changing. Let's not forget that FIFA has instituted a reform package that's going to alter the nature of the presidency. And with Sepp Blatter and his power base no longer in the job, you will see a different FIFA presidency. I'm not sure what that means. Maybe Simon Evans will have some idea. But it is interesting that Infantino came out ahead of Sheikh Salman at the FIFA Extraordinary Congress, considering the way the the winds were blowing ahead of the voting. A block of voters led by U.S. Soccer and Signor Galati helped push Infantino over the line in the second round. He needed, uh, he needed, uh, about 20 votes, not, maybe not even that, maybe 15 votes to get over the line in the second round. The United States and 27 others had voted for Prince Ali bin Al Hussein. He was not going to win. So, Sunil Gulati playing power broker, despite saying he's not a power broker, went ahead and helped move votes to Infantino. This is interesting because it is now spurring rumors that Infantino promised the United States the World Cup in 2026 in exchange for those votes. He has denied that that's the case. So, again, we'll talk to Simon about all of these various political uh, machinations as it relates to the FIFA presidential election. Meanwhile, Jeff Carlisle of ESPN FC reports that U.S. men's national team and Everton goalkeeper Tim Howard is set to join the Colorado Rapids in July, a return to MLS for Tim Howard. The two sides have agreed to a transfer fee between $600,000 and $750,000. Obviously, Tim Howard out of favor at Everton. It looks like his time is up. He is now taking the opportunity to jump stateside and get one of those big paydays that have come for U.S. national team players in recent years. Despite Howard reportedly asking for a four-year deal worth $5 million a year, Carlisle reports he'll be paid $2 million a year in MLS. It still sounds like insane money for a goalkeeper, but Colorado is rather desperate to get themselves some attention in that market. And at the very least, you could say that Stan Kroenke and the ownership are spending something. Again, questions of wisdom, but they're spending something. Take what you can get when you're a Rapids fan, I imagine. Manchester City beats Liverpool on penalties on Sunday after a 1-1 score over 120 minutes in the League Cup final on Sunday. City keeper Willy Caballero score, uh, saved three penalties in a row to lead his team to the victory. He's obviously Joe Hart's backup there at City. The League Cup uh, was City's fourth in their history. I 
did not care about the League Cup. I understand that trophies can be important in their own right, regardless of whether or not people care about them. And certainly you could have argued that getting a trophy of any kind would have been important for Liverpool, especially under Jurgen Klopp and a new program. It is City that grabs this uh, this trophy. Manchester United dealt uh, Arsenal a blow to their title chances with a 3-2 win at Old Trafford over the Gunners. Overnight phenom. And, and maybe he's been coming, but it's uh, certainly explosion on the to the scene for Marcus Rashford, who carried over his success from the Europa League in midweek, where he scored two goals to help United overcome a deficit against Michelin, with two more goals to lead Manchester United in this 3-2 victory over Arsenal. Arsenal continues a streak of being unable to beat United at Old Trafford. That goes back to 2006. What does this mean for Arsenal's title chances? Christian Hennage is going to give us some insight into that. Again, it's a question of the uh, of the attitude and the posture and the the uh, fortitude of this Arsenal team. As always, questions are dogging. Arsene Wenger and whether or not he's the man to push Arsenal over the line in a modern Premier League context, especially when there is no better year to go after this. Chelsea is down. Manchester United is down. We know that uh, that City can be incredibly inconsistent. Here's Arsenal sitting there ready to go for a title, and meanwhile they're getting uh, not only they can't beat Manchester United at Old Trafford. That's a, that's a big blow here because Leicester City is has a great fixture list ahead of them uh, to go after the title, and they continued their run uh, as the leaders in the Premier League with a one nothing win over um, over Norwich City in uh, uh, in action this weekend. Leonardo Ujoa scores the goal for um, for Leicester City. Tottenham beating Swansea, so they maintain second place in the Premier League. And then you have in Spain some uh, some interesting results as well. Barcelona extending their unbeaten streak to 34 games with a two win a two one win over Sevilla. If I'm not mistaken, that's the longest uh, unbeaten streak for a Spanish team since. Real Madrid back in the uh, late 80s, 87, 88, something like that. Atletico Madrid wins away at the Bernabeu, speaking of Real Madrid, one nothing over Real Madrid in the Madrid derby. Not a great game, uh, but when you're playing in the derby, that's what you do. You, you ugly it up for Diego Simeone and company. You get a you get a goal, you get a fortunate goal, and now, uh, now Real Madrid in trouble. Um, they, they were never going to win the, the, the uh, La Liga title and neither is Atleti, but you certainly need that momentum and, uh, Real Madrid looking to continue that into the, um, uh, into the Champions League as well. All right. So here's your schedule of events. Christian Hennage coming up in mere moments following Christian. Simon Evans from Reuters. We'll talk, uh, we'll talk Premier League and we'll talk, uh, FIFA presidential election. On a big Monday edition of Soccer Morning right here on Backheel.com. Thank you very much for listening. Don't go anywhere.
Welcome to Soccer Morning. Here's your host, Jason Davis. We are back on Soccer Morning. It's uh, Monday, which means we got to catch up. we got to get everything that happened on the weekend onto the show in some form or fashion. We need people who know what they're talking about uh, to help us out. We've got Christian Hennage now on the line from Jolly Old England where he's going to help us with the Premier League situation. Christian, how are you? I'm not too bad, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, I could go a couple of places. I, I said Premier League. Uh, certainly I could talk about the League Cup final. And, and you know what? Let's do that because I'm one of those people. And, and look, I'm not English, Christian. I, I don't really have an appreciation for the history of the League Cup. To me, it's that other cup competition that people care about even less than the FA Cup. What, what do you make of City winning this title? And, 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 you know, a backup goalkeeper playing the hero. Yeah, I thought the, the Caballero aspect of things was interesting. In, in general, the, the final was, was very much about two unfavoured goalkeepers in that sense, and the idea of actually, you know, sticking with Caballero, even though Pellegrini knows he's leaving soon, he is perhaps looking at his legacy. As well. But then I think if, if you look at his career, if you, if you go back to his time at Villarreal, Diego Forlan used to speak of him in glowing terms about his man management, particularly and how honest he was with players in relation to selecting them and dropping them. So the idea that, again, he would stick with a goalkeeper through the entire competition is, is really not as, as bizarre as it sounds. I think, as well, if you look culturally in, in Spain and, and other countries in Central Europe, it is quite a normal thing to have a tournament goalkeeper, if you will. So it's not too bizarre to see him given that big stage. And, and credit to the man, I thought he performed expertly. Simon Mignolet, again, I think he pulled out some some very good saves. You, you can't really deny that. I think what you can say is that he, he almost reaffirmed that he's not the answer for Liverpool and that realistically he's likely to be an expensive backup because they've signed him to a new long-term deal. I think he cost the club about £9 million when he joined from Sunderland. So those two goalkeepers, are, I would argue, have potentially very different futures at their clubs. But they're finding themselves in the same boat. I think, if anything, Cavalera has actually been able to give himself a potentially decent legacy because you would think, at least, that's probably his last great accuracy. I don't think he'll be now thrust into the Champions League or the Premier League, barring an injury to Joe Hart. Yeah, so what does this, you know, again, what does it mean for... The only, the only, the only real... Um, effect I can imagine from winning the League Cup again it's a trophy to go in the case okay but beyond that and, and again it's the you know it's it's well behind winning the league it's well behind the, the FA Cup even what does it mean for these teams individually does, does this have any negative impact on, on Klopp and Liverpool and any positive impact on City well I mean Klopp's now lost a cup final in the last four seasons as a manager so he's on a bit of a, a bad run personally I think for what it does with him in the bigger picture, not a great deal. I think perhaps it would have given a nice silver lining to a difficult season for Liverpool fans. But realistically, I think they're already looking to, to August as it is anyway. I think they're more focused on Klopp getting a full pre-season, more importantly, getting time in the transfer market to bring players that are more of his liking, more of his style. I think for City... You're looking at a team that, that again, is, is almost trying to justify its own spending and justify the end of the Pellegrini era. It's, it's difficult for them in, in the sense that Pep Guardiola is, is, is really drawing a lot of the attention away, I think, because of yeah. his perceived brilliance. And, and also, 
in in knowing that he's coming, it's it's also highlighting, I think, a lot of the, the flaws that Pellegrini has in his managing, managerial ability. So in, in terms of his final few months, yes, they have still a lot to play for. They have the league, they also have the Champions League to look at as well. Maintaining focus on those two competitions is incredibly difficult because as we're seeing with the Premier League, it's a bit of an alien season. The fact that we have Spurs and Leicester up there. But then also the Champions League, yes, they've, they've been able to, to do well against Kiev. But the biggest test and the, I think the more realistic test for them is how they fare with the, the competition's elite. And when they face those teams, can they actually match up with them and even overcome them? Because that's something they simply haven't been able to do in recent years. All right, so we have City winning a, uh, a League Cup. Uh, we we move on now to, to the Premier League itself and the highest-profile match of the weekend, obviously Manchester United hosting Arsenal. We have quite the you know 3-2 uh, thriller, Marcus Rashford, Louis van Gaal play-acting on the sideline, uh, quite, and Arsenal taking a big blow. And, and here's the narrative that's coming out, Christian. Arsenal can't beat uh, a U20 side, a U21 side. How can we expect them to go win the title? I, I think that's a, a tad unfair on them, in fairness. You, you had the likes of uh, Juan Mata in there. You had David De Gea in there, Morgan Schneiderlin. Uh, this was not perhaps the, the babes that I think people tried to, to claim it was. Certainly, I think you have to give a degree of credit to Lou Van Gaal. He's handed 23 players the Premier League debuts as Man United manager, including three in the game against Arsenal. Some of that is forced by injury to the likes of Wayne Rooney and also just circumstance. I think where you can lament Arsenal and arguably even Arsene Wenger is that in the, the big moments for them, in the defining moments of their season, they don't show up. I think you can can almost ignore really the, the opponent. Certainly the Leicester game was a, a slight difference, but then you would expect them to beat Leicester at home. They are Arsenal, they are attempting to, to win the Premier League title. I think on Sunday, though, I saw a team that just didn't want it enough. And, and, and again, you know, I, I've seen a lot of fans come out and say, oh, you know, they want these big wages, they, they don't try enough. I think for, pretty much from, from the, the first kickoff, Man United won every sort of 50-50 battle. And I think psychologically, they got into Arsenal's head really early on. And look, there's, a, there's perhaps an argument to be forged here that the pressure was too much for Arsenal. The idea that Man United are the ones struggling at this point and, and really this should be a victory for Arsenal quite comfortably. I think that played on their mind a little bit and it, it, it often kind of manifested itself in, in their play. They weren't as slick. I, I saw Theo Walcott was very meek and very tame in his performance and across the pitch there just wasn't enough sort of bite about Arsenal. If you look at when they've won the, the Premier League during the years, they've usually performed incredibly well at Old Trafford. I mean, very famously, they once won it there for, for I think, with a Wiltord goal many years ago. So again, it, that idea that they believe they can win the league, I just don't see it in their play. In the big moments, certainly they can turn it on against lesser opposition. That's great. But you have to go and, and beat the big teams. And, okay, Manchester United aren't where they normally are, but they're still a big team. Yeah. There, well, and and Arsenal just doesn't, and that's the thing. Even in a down year for for United, even well, even in a year where United is not convincing anyone that they're of uh, the league's elite, 
Arsenal can't go to Old Trafford and at least get a point. I mean, maybe that's not what you you want when you're chasing a title. You want you want all three. You have an opportunity to close the gap on on Leicester, no matter what. You know, at least stay keep pace with Leicester, and and they can't even get they can't even get a draw. I mean, it, I'm not I'm not I'm not sure exactly how these things going to play out. But if you look at the standings with you know with 11 games to go, Christian, it's hard to imagine Arsenal closing a five point gap. No, I mean, they've, they've won on and lost six of their last eight Premier League trips to Old Trafford, so it's, it's clearly something of a bogey ground for them. I think with that said, though, as much as we can praise Marcus Rashford for, for his performance, he is a really young forward, and you would think two experienced defenders would be able to handle him. He, he shouldn't be able to cause as much trouble and as much problems for that defence as he was able to, because, again, he's... He's only 18 years old. Is you know he's had realistically won one game at the elite level a few days prior against FC Midgetland. So there's a little bit of momentum and confidence for the young man, but not enough to to unsettle a, a defence like that. I think what it means for them is again self doubt. They've essentially pushed themselves down the hill at this point. They, they were in a, a fairly strong position. Certainly there was pressure on them from the fact that um, Leicester had had been able to to nab a relatively late win. That doesn't change the fact that, again, Arsenal are, are masters of their own destiny in the same way that Spurs are. And I think that's something else that's playing in, on their consciousness is the fact that, again, that they're battling Spurs for a title. And, and I asked on, on Twitter last night, if Tottenham do win the title, yeah. does that mean Wenger has to go? Does, does his position become untenable? Because at that point, you have to look at it from the position of a rival who was once seen as far below Arsenal mm-hmm. has now vaulted past them and essentially achieved something that they've been trying to do if Spurs win the league. Already you could argue that Spurs look a much better prospect in a much better team than Arsenal do at present, a more cohesive unit. And that's with Arsene Wenger having considerably more time than, than Mauricio Pochettino's had at White Hart Lane. Yeah, and, and, and Spurs loses, uh, I can't remember what his prognosis is, but um, what's the situation, or did he become, did he get? Did he come back, did Kane return? I, I wasn't sure about his status, I didn't watch the, the Spurs game this weekend, Christian, but regardless, it, it's pretty clear that, that Spurs is more than just a couple of players that have made some headlines over the last year or so. Exactly, it, it, it is a genuine group, I think Certainly, Harry Kane does come to the fore because he scores goals. There's a, you know, an obvious kind of uh, exalting of, of him and his abilities. Um, they were still able to to perform well without him. I thought yesterday when he when he went off. You know, they, at that point they had certainly they had, you know, taken a two-one lead. But I don't think he was as involved as the as usual. And I think what you have to say about Spurs is. It is very much a team ethic. It's, it's a, a group that work together and work well. And they have that sort of never-say-die attitude that we, we really admire in, in uh, Leicester. They've, you know, they've won their last six league games. They haven't won seven in a row since May 1967. They've taken more points from losing positions than any other team in the league. I think it's 17 this season. So, again, those factors, that, that self-belief that's clearly evident in that Spurs side, and has been reading it in a short space of time relative to their their other uh, title rivals, bar Leicester, of course. For me, that's that's a brilliant thing, and it, it, it certainly, I think, at least, earns Maurizio Pochettino a lot of credit. 
Uh, let's let, let me move down to uh, let me move down to twelfth place. Uh, Ch- Chelsea, you know, obviously this is a lost season for Chelsea. They're, they remain in the Champions League. Uh, they get a win uh, away to Southampton this weekend, which you know, I at this point it's it's playing. I suppose playing for pride. I, I guess on the off chance maybe they can climb up and grab a a spot in in, in Europe next year through. Um, through a, a decent finish if they don't win the Champions League, which it's difficult to imagine them doing that. But the story around Chelsea is clearly Antonio Conte and the potential of, of a new permanent manager come the summer. This is not the, the Pep situation at City, in part because they fired Mourinho and Goose Hiddink was always meant to be temporary. But there's been some thought that and some there, a, few, a couple of the Chelsea players have talked up Goose Hiddink staying on. What do you make of of Conte first of all, and then you know what kind of um, what kind of message does this send about Chelsea's ambitions and and what how they're trying to right this ship? I think what I would say about Conte is he he's someone that has built a, a very good career in, in a relatively short space of time as a manager. If you look at kind of his career, it's, it's from Bari to Atlanta to Siena to then Juventus and the, the big success that follows him, and then finally onto the, essentially what is the top job, so to speak, but Italy. I think he's someone that brings uh, a passion and an energy to his teams. I think if you look at the way his Juventus side consistently won Serie A, they really did steamroll that league. Um, and I think that came with the cost of they were never really able to do much in the Champions League because I think they really did hammer the gas pedal a little bit too much domestically. You've seen with, with his replacement, Max Allegri, They've been able to manage their competitions a little bit better, and, and as a consequence of that, they've been able to reach the final last season. I think he's an important hire for Chelsea in the sense that, again, he'll get them back to where they wish to be, which is obviously near the top of the league. I think even he could win the league because I think he is that good a manager. They may have to put those continental ambitions to the, the back burner for a little bit, which is not the worst thing in the world, I think, while they try and establish themselves and also integrate some more of those youth players. I thought it was interesting that Ruben Loftus-Cheek has, has signed a new long-term deal just today. I think that points to where they see their future as a, a genuine mix between highly paid and, and uh, high-costing stars, but then also young players as well from the foundations of the academy. Um, in terms of hitting staying on, no, it, it just can't be it. He, he's not at that stage in his career. Mm. I think this hitting now is someone that is... Is very much a short-term option for, for teams, be they international or club level. He's not someone that you would want to come in and then start essentially building a, a dynasty for, for Chelsea. He's someone that can, can do a job over the short term, definitely. I think can galvanise, can very much uh, fix broken um, confidence. But in the long term, it's it's just simply not a believable option for me. No, and, and, and yeah, absolutely, and I, I see where they're. I see the direction they're going. Um, you know, I, I guess we don't know how Conte will adapt until Conte arrives, and, and and certainly one of the things that's been indicative of this era of 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 the Premier League is that we've moved away from uh, the manager who is also responsible for the transfer policy. It, it, it doesn't always follow that you're going to give a manager all of that responsibility anymore. Is Conte the type of type of, of manager who can walk in at Chelsea, be given a, a big kitty and, and go out and sign players who are going to help them get back to the to the Premier League title level, the Champions League winning level? Or does he is he going to need some help? I think he will need some help. The, the difficulty is 
uh, Michael Amanala, who's kind of the sporting director there, I think endures quite a, a mixed perception. There's certainly a belief that he's not that good at his job. One thing you can say about Juventus, particularly during the Conte period, is that they were incredibly shrewd in the market. They were able to spot deals like Andrea Pirlo for free and take that risk in inverted commas, whether it was even a risk in the first place at all. They also you know, managed to sign the likes of Paul Pogba, who has, has said himself, there was a number of teams in Italy that turned him down and didn't want to give him not only the money he was after, but also the opportunities in the first team. A lot of teams in Italy, I think Roma and Genoa were two that he mentioned, saw him as a project, someone to usher along slowly into the first team. Juventus gave him responsibility early on, and that, I think we can all agree, has turned out fantastically for them, and, and they now have a truly world-class player that you could argue they'll sell for upwards of 60, 70 million euros. Mm. I think how much influence Antonio Conte had in that, I would say you can realistically give him half of the the, the success or the, the plaudits. There was clearly a, a procedure and a process and a, and a group element to that those decisions. So I think just giving him money, though, that in itself necessarily won't solve anything because, again, teams will almost see you coming. I think teams are a lot wiser to these kind of situations now. I think what you have to do is you have to sit down and identify, firstly, how you wish the team to play. Consequently, how many of the players in the group fit that dynamic and and work in that dynamic. And then where do you need to to bring players in and, and who do you think is available? Certainly, with with any new manager, there is a belief that maybe he'll get back into those he knows and perhaps Conte will go to Juventus and say, I want Paul Pogba and be able to convince him to come with him to London. The long term, though, I I think, again, it's that youth system that has to start benefiting Chelsea. It's something they've invested in heavily and seen very little return from it at this precise moment. Well, to that that point, I, I find it fascinating... That there are, especially at these big clubs, okay, we know, we know uh, in Spain, so much of what happens there, it turns on academies. And in Barcelona, for, for the fact, despite the fact that they spent on, on Neymar and, and Suarez and a couple of other players through their team, has a reputation for leaning on, on their academy, no matter who's in charge. But, but when you talk about a, a big, and, and look, Marcus Rashford's a great story, et cetera, et cetera. When you talk about a big club in England, is there, is there a real impetus? Is there a real push? A real desire on the part of the people who end up in charge, meaning the most, for the most part, the manager, to bring through those players. I mean, I'm talking about a disconnect between what the academy's trying to do and the investment that they, that the club itself puts into the academy, and then the man who's picking the the, the lineup on Saturdays. Of course, I, I think I think perhaps the motivation of again having local product in the team that is not as high on the list. I think purely from a financial perspective, the money save, the, again, ticking the quotas on the squad in terms of having those four homegrowns, those eight trained in England, that's vital. You, you can't simply avoid that because then it bleeds over into you only being able to select fewer players in your, your overall squad. So certainly there is a, an impetus and I think a, a need for these for these kind of sporting directors and such to produce their own players because again even just look at things from the wider picture it's it's becoming quite an in thing now to to start to really produce your own players whether that be for future sales in the case of some smaller clubs or whether it be so that you actually have representation of your academy in the first team for the elite clubs 
you look at perhaps the pinnacle Barcelona, they have a number of, of players. They're still doing it now. Even Sergio Roberto is coming in. You have Sergio Champi, you have Monia. That production line hasn't slowed down after the success. So you could argue the idea that, again, you can't do it and be successful is really blown to bits by Barcelona. Yeah. Certainly, if you look across at their rivals, Real Madrid, that's something that they're kind of lamented for, is the fact that there isn't enough um, Castilla representation, there isn't enough youth team representation in that first team. It's 11 people that have been brought in from different parts of, of Europe and the world. And that's not really sustainable for, for a football club. And I think Chelsea know that. That's why they've tried to invest in their academy structure for, for a number of years. The difficulty comes in giving those players opportunities and, and trusting them enough. A lot's been made of the fact that Chelsea have some 30 players out on loan. But I think if you look at the likes of, let's say, Nathan Aki, Andreas Christensen, there's two players to me who currently are at Watford and Borussia Mönchengladbach respectively, but could actually be contributing to Chelsea right this second. Christensen's enjoyed a, a very solid season with Gladbach after some initial struggles. <clears throat> Aki's done a lot of plaudits for Watford. Two positions that, are, again, they could have helped Chelsea with undeniably, and that's before you even factor in that we have Matt Miazga now floating in there trying to, to earn some minutes and see where he fits into the, the greater plot. All right, so, um, you know, it, the, the other side of, well, it, it, a part of all of this, of course, is and, and we've got the, the FA imposing... Um, Imposing some restrictions on the type of uh, on the makeup of these uh, uh, of these clubs, uh, the the rosters that they can um, that they can play. I'm trying to to work my brain here to to this question, Christian. It, it involves the money coming in through the television contracts. Uh, we we know that that there have already been some pretty high profile, interesting signings to some pretty, uh, for lack of a better word, small clubs. Uh, in in preparation for that money, that money's not here yet, and and how is it going to impact the league when it does? And and and, and here's an interesting thing to look at. I, I'm I'm at um I'm at a pub this weekend, watching, um watching the 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 games. There's not a lot going on, and there was a group of of Villa fans, um hearty souls they are, watching Villa play Stoke. Now Stoke beat Villa. Villa is almost certain to go down at this point. How does missing out on the Premier League windfall next season, how is that going to affect Villa for the next 5, 10, 15 years? You would think it will put them back some way because, again, they will miss out on that money. I think they will also be helped by the fact they'll get parachute payments, though. So, realistically, what you're projecting for Villa to be successful is they have to come straight back up. That is traditionally the issue for clubs that go down from the Premier League, particularly those that have been consistent members of the, the top flight, is that you almost have to have that straight back. You have to bounce straight back up purely from a financial perspective because invariably the longer you stay in that league, the harder it then becomes to, to get out of it because you become ingrained in it. You have to slowly start to ship away the, the higher earners or the better players, be it to rivals in the top league or just because you can't afford them. It's not easy to do, though. I believe it's about 24% of teams that go down, come back up at the first attempt. Yeah. The fact that this Premier League windfall that you talk about is also near, certainly it will limit their ability to, to bring the elite in for, for some time. I think what I would say, though, is, is Villa are a team that are really kind of founded on their academy at this point. You have the likes of Kieran Clark, Nathan Baker, Jack Grealish. There is a 
an underbelly of promising young players that I think will, will carry them through to a certain degree. That's not to say they'll bounce straight back up. That, I think, will, will take more time to, to work out and truly um, be able to evaluate. But I think in the short term, you've got a, a crux of solid young players there. And some have been brought in, the likes of Bakuna, Akori uh, as well, if, if he does stay, yeah. that could build a, a solid side that could come back up. Now, it will also allow them to clear the decks a little bit and to get rid of some of the players that simply aren't good enough. Mm. I think where you have to look at this is, is really what is Randy Lerner's commitment to things? Because I often use Newcastle as a, as a case study of a team that managed it fairly well in the sense that they shipped out the high earners they knew wouldn't work for them. They kept on a core of what were high earners that they knew were better than the second tier that could get them up importantly and then also serve as a foundation for, for the Premier League uh, season ahead of them. It's much easier said than done, though, and I think that's what, what Villa and, and particularly Randy Lerner will, will come to realise when they do have to face the, the championship next season. Obviously, the parachute payments are going to help massively for whoever goes down. Uh, Villa expected to. I mean, right now, uh, Newcastle and Sunderland, by the way, to lose that derby would be pretty sad for the Premier League, but Newcastle, Sunderland, I mean, it'll happen in the championship, of course. Um, and, and, and I, it was, you know, one of the conversations I had was talking about the clubs that are quote unquote too big to go down. I, I put Villa in that group. I put Newcastle in that group. Um, Christian, and I, I'm not saying that there's a, there's like a, you know, a manhole cover that goes over the top of the championship once this money comes into the Premier League next year, especially with those parachute payments. But do you, do, do you, just very briefly, do you think, you know, beyond Villa specifically, or beyond Newcastle specifically, does does the change does the amount of money that's available to Premier League clubs year to year with this contract change the nature of uh, of the promotion and relegation battles we're going to see? I think so, I, I, and I and I say that because they'll be able to attract bigger players. Look at West Ham getting Dimitri Payet. A good portion of that deal was funded on the fact that not only could he live in London he could make a lot of money from doing it. So when you have a team that traditionally, at least in recent times in the Premier League, has been about mid-table, sort of 12th to 10th, maybe 9th on a good year, bringing in a player like that, it suddenly vaults them up a few positions and essentially it tightens the race at the bottom for those who don't spend and don't invest, or if they do invest, don't get the return from the player that they've hoped. Mm-hmm. That, in many ways, is, is what you're looking at with Newcastle. They hope the likes of Wijnaldum and Mitrovic, the Champions League players that they bought, would give an instant impact. They have in spades, but not, but not enough to drag them away from uh, the relegation fight. So, to say you're going to see an impact, yeah, undeniably you will, because when you come up from the second tier, you already know that the teams above you have more spending power, have a greater ability to recruit players, and arguably will have widened the gap from the championship quality players that you have before you've even kicked a ball. Christian Henage, you, uh, you can uh, Henage, you can follow him on Twitter K H E N E A G E. Writes on the Premier League and MLS and many other things, European stuff as well. And always does an excellent job here on Soccer Morning, Christian. I appreciate the time. We got to move on to FIFA nonsense, but glad we got to talk about some actual football today. <laughs> Thank you. A genuine pleasure, man. There goes uh, Christian. We'll talk to him again soon, I'm sure. In the meantime, just step aside. Simon Evans, Reuters.com, or Reuters.com, Reuters, a writer for Reuters, will join us to talk about Gianni Infantino's 
relative shock win at the FIFA Congress on Friday. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Welcome to Soccer Morning. Here's your host, Jason Davis. All right. As of Friday, FIFA has a new president. His name is Johnny Infantino. He is Swiss. He holds an Italian passport as well. Uh, and his win was something of a surprise based on some early prognostications. Let me get that word correct. Uh, to talk about how things went down in Zurich and certainly U.S. soccer's uh, interesting role in the process. Simon Evans from Reuters joins us now. Hi, Simon. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So, uh, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how big of a surprise was it that Johnny Infantino won in two ballots? Um, I don't think it was a massive surprise. Um, I certainly didn't predict a victory for uh, Sheikh Salman in in uh, in writing because, you know, around those events, you hear so much from so many people. People are spinning. Everybody's confident. Everybody says uh, they've got it in the bag. Uh, but certainly, you know, the indications were that Sheikh Salman had a strong base of support and, and was the favorite. But Gianni Infantino was always seen as being very close to him. It was a two-horse race, and he, he, he really uh, overtook in the final lap and, uh, to get that victory. Yeah, well, one of the things that has been uh, focused upon in light of Infantino's victory, and, and you wrote as much on Friday after uh, after the event, is... The blocks breaking down because we hear all the time, Simon, that you know CAF is voting this way as a block, and, and the Caribbean nations are voting this way as a block. Is that that made, that played a major role in all of this? Yeah, I mean, the only block that survived intact was UEFA. Pretty much, UEFA was hundred percent behind Gianni Infantino. Um, CONCACAF was absolutely the least block-like of all. Um, the fact that CONCACAF doesn't have a president and doesn't have a leader. Uh, and that even the Caribbean doesn't have um, a clear leadership figure there, mm-hmm. meant that there was no one to enforce. There was no one to enforce a block. So you had, uh, you know, U.S. soccer and, and the Canadians uh, going with uh, Infantino in the second round. U.S. soccer had nominated Prince Ali last time around, so they felt obliged to support him this time, but they were always going to sw- switch to Gianni Infantino. That was a fairly open secret. Yeah. And then you had the UNCAF nations, the Central Americans, Honduras, Costa Rica, etc., who came out very early in the election process for Infantino. But what was the big surprise from this region was the way the Caribbean went all over the place, and then when it mattered, Gulati and his allies in CONCACAF were able to get a significant number of Caribbean nations to switch from their votes, from not only from Prince Ali to Infantino, but also some of them, I believe, switching from Salman to wow. Infantino in that second round. Uh, that's, that's, that is interesting. Now, now, I imagine the power vacuum with CONCACAF allowed U.S. soccer to play a, an outside role as opposed to, to maybe past elections. And I'll come to U.S. soccer and Gulati's um, um, role in all of this in, in a moment, but you know, one of the things that that is interesting from an outside observer, Simon, is that you know it's an election, and and we, you know, as as citizens of, uh, of democratic countries, we we vote for the candidate we think is going to do the best job. Um, that doesn't always seem to be the case in FIFA. In fact, I, you know, I heard specifically mentioned that 
you know, oh, here's some calf nations, and I don't know their, I don't know which ones individually, but here's some calf nations who may have switched their vote from Salman to Infantino, not because they thought Infantino was a better choice, but because they thought Infantino was going to win and they wanted to be in the winning camp. How important is that? That was a factor. In fact, I spoke to the president of the Kenyan FA who quite openly said that's what he did. He was given a mandate by his federation to vote for Salman. He got there, and after the first round of votes, Infantino was just three ahead. But he said to me, that's a big three. And he rang his federation and said, I think Infantino's going to win. And they said, switch your vote. So, you know, it does happen because there's that tradition within FIFA, within the old politics. And I think, to be fair, it is starting to die out. The fact that the blocks are breaking down is a good thing, I think. And uh, that, But that feeling from the Blatter era that that you don't want to be on the wrong side. And let's be honest, you know, there's a reason why, you know, U.S. soccer supported Blatter in votes when it was clear Blatter was going to win. You don't really get anything by being on the wrong side. But this was a different election. That shouldn't really have been a factor. But for some, clearly, it's going to take a time for uh, the cultural shift, shall we say, well, in FIFA politics to come into effect. At the same time, if I'm not mistaken, and honestly, I don't... I, I, platforms of fifa presidents was not something that i had on my reading list over the last couple of weeks although i probably shame on you jason i I know but but i do i do recall hearing that while prince ali was sort of out in the public sphere saying we're going to stop the handout culture of fifa in order for uh, in, in you know in exchange for political support infantino went the other direction and said hey here's we're going to give everybody five million bucks is that is that was that part of his platform and how important was that to his election victory it was absolutely central to his election victory, I think. And I, I sat in, in two or three uh, presentations that Infantino made to the members, including his final one to the FIFA Congress, where the phrase, FIFA's money is your money, was applauded and was, was very well received. Um, look, you know, you can argue uh, both ways on it. It clearly looks like a blatter kind of move to offer people more money. But in, in a, you know, in elections, you have to make promises. You have to offer people something. And, and I think it was, it, from an electoral tactic, it worked quite well. Now, should FIFA be going through the process of putting out more money to their members? Infantino's argument is, you know, FIFA has five billion in revenue and gives out less than one billion to the member associations. It can afford it. In fact, what's, what's it doing with the money if it isn't spending it on football True. development? True. So, you know, you can, you can argue that case. But it, I did find, especially in the meeting in Miami, where you sat in a room full of uh, members of Caribbean associations who in the past have been seen as being uh, very much tied into that client system with Blatter, to see a candidate come in and talk primarily about money was a little unsettling. I, I didn't really like that. And, and Sheikh Salman didn't do that. You know, He said, let's be responsible with the money. Let's take a look at the finances. We've got some problems. That maybe wasn't a message they wanted to hear. Well, again, as you said, the, the culture is going to change, but it might change slow. We hope it will, and it, maybe that's coming, but it's going to ha- it's going to take uh, time in order for that to sort of s- settle in. Now, you know, in, in in previous to the the presidential election was the passage of the of the reform package, and, and I guess what what fans want to know, fans who take an interest in in FIFA governance, if uh, if they so choose. Um, is whether or not those reforms are going to actually make a difference and how they'll impact what Infantino does as president. Yeah, they will make a difference. I mean, I think this is what this is one thing that, that really does need to be stressed is there's been, justifiably over the years, a huge amount of cynicism when FIFA talks about reform because when Sepp Blatter talks about change and reform, you know, our eyes rolled, and, and quite quite rightly so. 
But this package was put together by people who are not part of that culture, who are outside of it. It was negotiated through a reform committee, which I was very skeptical about. I liked Domenico Scala's reforms when he came out with them as an independent person. And I was skeptical about whether they get through a reform committee made up of the confederations. But they were pushed through. They were argued through. Uh, the confederations, some reluctantly, others enthusiastically adopted them. And the structural checks and balances, the role of independence, uh, broadening out the FIFA Council, there's going to be six women elected to it with full voting rights, not the token gesture person like we had under Seth Blatter. You know, the Ethics and Compliance Committee is going to be 100% made up of independence. In other words, you know, forensic auditors and, and accountants and people who know what they're talking about. That should really go a long way to making sure you don't have things like TV broadcasting rights being given to Jack right. Warner for a dollar, yeah. right? Whether it changes the whole governance of soccer into something that everybody ha is happy with, players and clubs, that's an entirely another argument. But the fact is, those people, and there is this kind of Donald Trump-style populism around the argument on FIFA, those people who said that FIFA was incapable of bringing in any serious reforms, couldn't reform itself, it had to be outside intervention, I think, I think they've been proven wrong. These, these are quite boring reforms, and I sat in the CONCACAF meeting where, where the CONCACAF passed their own reforms, which are slightly more radical than FIFA's. And there was this debate going on there with people from the various federations saying, well, hold on, shouldn't that text say shall rather than may? What happens if our vice president gets in trouble? How do we replace him? Why don't we have an ethics committee? That was, I mean, that was quite incredible to see an argument going on there where people from the Caribbean were saying, okay, these reforms are, are quite good, but why don't we have an ethics committee? Yeah, okay, we'll have an ethics committee. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but it's boring. It's boring for people, isn't it? It's, it's constitutions, it's statutes, it's procedures, it's checks and balances. But I think FIFA could do with a little bit of boring now. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, well, it certainly, <laughs> in a way, and I'm not going to, I'm not saying that this is anybody's thought process, but in a way, the more boring you make it, the, the less people are paying attention. That's, that's, I'm not saying sleight of hand is something that they're trying to do. All right. So, so we, we, we had Friday's election. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Johnny Infantino up three votes after the first round. That's when the politicking really began. Lots of focus. And I, and I wasn't able to watch the Fox broadcast because I was on the air, Simon. So I had the FIFA feed up uh, and only able to look at it occasionally, but lots of focus apparently on Sunil Gulati and his role. How important was he to brokering um, these these votes? I believe you've already addressed it a little bit. And then what does that mean for U.S. soccer ultimately? Well, how important he was, I think he was central to it. I mean, certainly we shouldn't underestimate the fact that there was a, a large number of, a uh, significant number of African FAs who abandoned Salman and ignored the instructions from the CAF Executive Committee. That was really important, and I probably didn't stress that enough in, in the article. But the CONCACAF switch and the switch of other countries who were closely tied to Prince Ali's uh, voting bloc, that was a lot of that work was done by Sunil Gulati. I didn't see the Fox broadcast either, where, where I think they were following Sunil around. I was stood in the Congress Hall myself and watched Gulati go up to Prince Ali after the first round of votes, put his arm around him, 
lead him be out behind one of the voting booths for a private chat. He then came out. There was another chat between Sunil and Infantino. Then there was a chat between all three of them. And then Gulati, with the help of Sam Gandhi, who's the lawyer working for CONCACAF and closely allied to Gulati, they went off around the Congress Hall talking to people during that break. Uh, and, and that was pretty important. There was, there was some key swings there. They worked on people. Now, having said that, what does that mean for U.S. soccer? Um, I think it means that, that Sunil's in a, in a very good relationship with Johnny Infantino. That's the first thing to say. Um, I think uh, broader than that, it's really harder to say because, you know, there's also within, within FIFA some unease about the way that, uh, you know, that the American lawyers, the American PR advisors are working within the Zurich headquarters. Uh, the U.S. is one country amongst 209 and suddenly seems to be carrying a lot more power than that. Maybe power commensurate to its position in the world and yeah. so on. But uh, And maybe doing lots of good things, but there will be some unease about that as well. So, I, you know, if I was Sonny Hill, I would, be, uh, I would be very happy with how things worked out. He was. But I would also be a little bit wary of perhaps overdoing it and, and uh, maybe creating well, some kind of backlash down the line. Yeah, and I don't have them in front of me, uh, Simon, but I believe that, you know, Sunil, when asked about his role in all of this, sort of downplayed the, 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 the power broker label, uh, in, probably in, in, in deference to the rest of the body and in deference to maybe some unease on the, on the, the part of, of, of the FIFA membership with U.S. soccer's influence or you, the, the American influence in the general sense in, in, in FIFA, especially with the ongoing uh, investigation from the Department of Justice and the like. And in fact, what, what's interesting now, and this is just going to happen, I don't think that you can even stop this, but uh, the BBC has a story this morning, and I mentioned it to you before we came on the air. The headline reads, Johnny Infantino denies 2026 World Cup promise to the U.S. because I, I, it just, it's going to flow. People are going to make connections that probably aren't there necessarily between what Steel Galati and U.S. Soccer did for Johnny Infantino and things like a 2026 World Cup. Now, th- that doesn't even begin to, to, to ask the question whether or not Gianni Infantino is going to have the, the power to do anything about the 2026 World Cup. Well, exactly. That's, that's the actual point with that is that um, it's a fair question to ask Gianni Infantino, but the reality is that the president doesn't appoint the next World Cup. Uh, neither anymore does the FIFA Exco, which is being disbanded and replaced by the FIFA Council. Mm-hmm. That doesn't. It's the full Congress. It's 209 nations. It's the same people who voted in that election who have all kinds of different interests and views. So there is no deal that can be done about a World Cup. Certainly if Infantino went out there and said, guys, we really need a good, solid World Cup with big revenues coming in, big TV audiences. We've been to Russia. We're, go- we're going to Qatar. Now we need something with, uh, that we're 100% copper-bottomed financial success. That would have a powerful influence on the outcome of the vote. Don't get me wrong, but the, there is no deal that can be done. Yeah, um, you know, one thing that that gets talked a lot, um, and in certain circles here in the U.S., I don't think it's the mainstream soccer public. Uh, it, it's a it's a niche part of the hardcore, but it is there is some discussion about Sinu Galati's leadership of U.S. soccer. I've certainly had some criticisms for him just because he's a uh, helping move votes and maybe in the good graces of the new FIFA president doesn't mean all of that goes away. And, right. s- and so people have asked, you know, why, why is there not a challenge to Sunil Galati? I believe his, uh, he was elected for another four year term in 2014. So there's, that's actually going to take him, you know, through the next World Cup. 
Um, and I think what we're seeing here, Simon, and just give me your thoughts here, is that things like this and Snowglotty being a part of the FIFA machine that certainly carries a negative connotation because of the reputation of FIFA. But on the on the on the plus side of it, he knows these people. He can put an arm around Johnny Infantino. You hire you you start hire you you elect a new. A new U.S. soccer president, and that that process has to start all over again. Is there something to be said for the? And, and this isn't a reason to keep people in that job. I'm just saying that as things are are happening on the ground in real politics, that that having somebody who's who's known um, and knows everybody else is a good thing for U.S. soccer right now. Yeah, I mean, I think you can you can certainly make that argument, and there's no doubt that that what happened on Friday strengthens Gulati's position overall. You know, he's the power vacuum at Concacaf. There, in reality, Sonny is running Concacaf at the moment. I mean, you know, he's he's the one making the suggestions. Uh, Sam Gandhi, the lawyer who's very closely allied uh, to Sunil, has has basically written the reforms that Concacaf passed on Friday. Um, Sunil's a vice president of FIFA. He's on the Exco. He's going to be involved in a lot of discussions with Infantino about the way forward for FIFA. I mean, this has been a, a big shift from a guy who was viewed as very much an outsider, with, viewed with suspicion by Blatter and many other people within FIFA, uh, wasn't really you know, a popular figure in CONCACAF either. He's suddenly in a very, very powerful position in world football. He is. And if the people in U.S. soccer... Uh, I, th- I entirely agree with you. That that shouldn't change any argument that people are having about whether he's the right man to lead U.S. soccer forward. Uh, but again, U.S. soccer had its doesn't have congresses. They have their annual general meeting. I believe yeah. it was this weekend, wasn't it? Uh, I, I, if that happened, I missed that. There's so, so much going on, Simon. <laughs> but that's kind of my point, in a way, is that um, people who talk about you know changing U.S. soccer federation and why is it always Sunil. How how involved are people in U.S. soccer? There are those democratic structures there, and it's the same with every national association. People can people have that option to hold them to account. The I don't think the sports media in this country does that very well. To be frank, you know, you, that's one of the things that Concacaf got away with all the years yeah. is they weren't being held to account. And, yeah. and still, you had the situation a couple of weeks ago in Miami. All the candidates for FIFA president, all the Concacaf leadership, are gathering in a hotel. And you know, I'm not blaming the reporters because we all know the budget situations at media outlets. But none of the American soccer writers were there. Mm. You know, yeah. and it's unthinkable that that would have happened in a European country so I think those people who are interested in in, in what's going on in US soccer why isn't Galati being questioned more why aren't there alternatives maybe need to start looking at US soccer and holding them to account and just doing things that people do in democratic countries absolutely and you're right the general the annual general meeting for US soccer was this weekend in San Antonio so there you go Uh, last thing here um, more to big picture and and FIFA itself Um, you know Loretta Lynch is not done um, at least not until she's replaced in that job. I imagine it's not going to stop anytime soon. FIFA probably knows this. People within FIFA know this. There, I imagine there are figures who are worried about what the future will bring. Um, you know, electing a new president, no matter how good a person or good a guy or, or clean Johnny Infantino is, and, and certainly I don't know everything about him, doesn't wipe away all of that. And it's not going to turn FIFA suddenly into a, an organization everybody trusts. So what's, what's next? I mean, how much of Johnny Infantino's role now is, is sort of not necessarily ceremonial, although I, I think I've seen that argued, but but more about the PR side of it. 
Yeah, he won't be ceremonial. I was talking to somebody at the weekend who who worked worked at UEFA um, around Infantino, who said, um, you know, we don't need to worry too much about who the next general secretary is going to be because they just elected him. I mean, he's extremely hands-on, extremely driven. And as you can see by the fact that he's just flown through the ranks, he's ex- he's, he's very ambitious and and very capable as well. Um, so I don't think he's going to be this ceremonial um, ambassadorial figure that maybe some of the people inside FIFA advising them want the president to be. I think he's going to be extremely active. He's talking about putting football back at the centre of things, and I think that was symbolic that today the first thing he did was to talk was to hold a football game at FIFA's headquarters rather than to have a gathering of people in suits. He's got, there is that populist side to him. Um, I think he's going to try and uh, get the clubs back involved in some way and the players on board a little bit. He's going to try and, and you know heal some of those divisions that have been built up over the years between UEFA and FIFA and the different confederations and so on. But in terms of the investigation, I think you know I think FIFA has to prove to the Department of Justice to maintain its victim status and not find itself in serious, serious trouble. It has to prove that it's changed. It has to prove that the reforms are serious. I, I mean, the reforms are on paper pretty good. They have to show that they're, they're doing the right thing, that they have a good tender processes, and all those boring things have to be done properly. And they need to get through to Russia, in my opinion. You know, they need, there's two and a half years till the Russia World Cup. When the World Cup comes along, everyone loves FIFA, right? We, we don't care. You know, we've got We've got Ronaldo and Messi on the field. Thank you very much. We love, we love world soccer. Yeah. Um, and two and a half years, can they get through You know, the next year without... There's going to be cases come up from the past still. There's, maybe there will be more arrests. We don't know. But there are going to be things from the past that will get dr- drawn out, but without any fresh ones. You know, without people associated with his administration or new appointments uh, being seen to do wrong things, without any deals being done against the statutes or, or behind closed doors and so on. It's two and a half years they've got, I think, that they need to have just a nice, quiet side on the administration do the populist kind of PR stuff that you're talking about that Infantino's very good at, and then get to a World Cup. And then maybe, maybe people can start talking about FIFA having turned the corner. There there are so many things, so many more layers. Um, we even had Sepp sort of uh, being Sepp, yeah. putting himself on top of this thing because he has to, uh, saying something to the effect of, uh, we've got a new president now, maybe they can leave us alone and let us do our jobs or something. And and. and Somebody I, I saw on Twitter was like, us? You? What, wait, what's happening here? You're, you're banned for six years. <laughs> is, <laughs> what, what, what's next for Sepp Blatter, I guess, is maybe a good question. Oh, you know, I mean, really, you know, unfortunately, I think, you know, he's finding it very hard to, to handle being out there. I mean, did he really need to say anything at all other than congratulate? Even congratulating Gianni Infantino carries some kind of stigma with it. I mean, re- you know, but we all knew this was going to happen. Blatter can't just quietly go back to the village uh, and, and, and watch some football games on TV. He's going to want to be at the center of attention. He really does think he was Mr. Football and he did all these wonderful things. And, and, and it's very hard for him personally, I think. I think he's taken it very difficult. I mean... That Congress, when he handed, when he announced he was with, handing over his mandate, effectively resigning, there is no doubt at all in my mind that he imagined that Congress would be somebody on the stage with him, Blatter endorsing the new guy, a huge cheers and standing ovation for Blatter, and he would be named honorary president of FIFA. 
as it happened, what happened on Friday was there was one mention of Sepp Blatter throughout that whole 14-hour Congress. And it was, uh, uh, as they went through the formalities, just before the election, they said, uh, President Sepp Blatter has stood down from his position. So we now move on to the election for the next president. That was it. Wow. That was it. And I wow. think that he finds that very, very hard to handle. Yeah, big blow to his, uh, to his significant ego. Simon Evans In- from Reuters joining us. So go ahead, Simon. Sorry. No, indeed. Absolutely. I think, I think it's personally taken a toll for him. And, you know, on a human level, you kind of feel sorry for him a little bit. But, you know, after everything that's gone on, he should really be being advised to take a, a back role now, a quiet role, and just, and just keep out of the headlines for a while. There we go. We're going to get, maybe we'll get that movie that actually does tell the real story of Sepp Blatter's tenure as FIFA president, uh, not funded by FIFA and therefore not a propaganda tool. Uh, Simon, thank you very much for the time. Again, we could, we could spend a whole day talking about this stuff. It's fascinating. We'll, we'll probably have you on, um, you know, in the near future. Um, as these things roll along. Simon Evans from Reuters. Thank you very much, Simon. Cheers, Jason. There goes Simon Evans. Let's uh, take a quick break. We'll see if we have time to squeeze in a couple of phone calls. It is a very busy Monday here on Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Do not go anywhere. We will be right back. Welcome to Soccer Morning. Here's your host, Jason David. All right, we're back on Soccer Morning. little time for your phone calls here on a Monday. Coming out of, a, as I said, a very busy weekend. Lots and lots of things happening in the world of soccer. Um, and to the point of U.S. Soccer's annual general meeting, which happened in San Antonio this weekend, and I just learned about our friend Baudur on Twitter, is uh, pointing out the fact that Carlos Cordero was uh, was named the new vice president of, uh, of U.S. soccer with Kevin Payne as a candidate. Kevin Payne, who now, obviously formerly of D.C. United and um, and uh, at Toronto FC, you know him from those two MLS gigs, now he's running U.S. club soccer. Um, so that's uh, a, a significant uh, position in the hierarchy of the game, and he's a board member uh, for U.S. soccer. By the way, I, I saw some of this on Twitter on Friday. Uh, some disgust, some uh, some stated upset over the fact that Don Garber was the man casting the U.S. soccer vote at the FIFA election in Zurich. And I'll admit that I'm not sure how to feel about that. Um, Don Garber is a U.S. soccer board member. Um, I... D- <laughs> It is, it, does it, does it show, is it a conflict of interest? Is it, uh, is it collu- is a symbol of collusion? If, if Don, I mean, look, MLS, MLS has a major role to play in this, in the state of American soccer and the growth of American soccer. It should not dominate to the point of exclusion of other professional soccer leagues. And yet it's pretty clear that, that whatever happens in the future, U.S. Uh, MLS is going to be a part of it. So, so here, here I, again, I understand why some people immediately jump to this notion that that Don Garber being so close to U.S. soccer and therefore MLS by representation being so close to U.S. soccer somehow means that everybody else gets screwed. I, I, I don't think that's always. I mean, I don't think that's. I, 
I don't know. Where, where are we with this? Hit me up on Twitter, DavisJSN, at Soccer Morning. Let me know. Because, again, should, should I be worried about this? If there's a legitimate problem with some collusionary relationship, then, then let's work that. Let's, you know, let's talk about that. Let's bring attention to that. Let's point out why that's a problem. If, if you are of the opinion that U.S. soccer defers to MLS to the detriment of the game, yes, that's, that's a reason to bring this up. Now, of course, prior to the launch of MLS, the top level professional league history of this country was a disaster. So for MLS to become a major player in U.S. soccer is logical and understandable. Whether or not we have now 20 years on reached the point where that relationship is damaging further growth or hurting grassroots efforts to launch independent soccer leagues, yeah, that's a conversation worth having. It certainly is. And and I know one of the one of the elements of this, one of the, the, the items of anger that causes some anger is the fact that, that I don't believe that NASL currently has representation on the U.S. soccer uh, board, which I can see is a problem. And if, if MLS is there, maybe NASL should be there too. I, and I don't know why that is. And if that's, I mean, sounds bad. So, sounds pretty bad. So why, why is that not the, why isn't there no NASL representation? If you have MLS, why don't you, why no NASL? Uh, Larry in Texas is on the line. Larry, what's up, man? Hey, man. Uh, I just want to ask you, have you heard about the rumor about Messi coming over to the U.S. in the next few years? Have I heard that rumor? Is that what you're asking me? Really? Uh, Larry. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you what you think about I mean, it. Look, uh, Lionel Messi, uh, is still in his 20s. He is the best player in the world. Do you see that free kick he hit this weekend? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty insane, right? I don't think Lionel Messi, yeah, yeah. I don't think Lionel Messi is going to be, uh, a candidate to leave Barcelona, the only club he's ever played for, the club that brought him over from Argentina and gave him the growth hormone that helped, uh, deal with some medical issues he had. I don't think he's likely to leave Barcelona for five years, six years, seven years. I mean, why would he? And why would they say goodbye to him? So any notion that he might one day end up in the United States is so far in the future that things, so many things could possibly change that I don't like to get wrapped up in that idea. I mean, every now and then a headline hits. Ronaldo says he'd like to play in the U.S. Ronaldo to MLS. Ronaldo's going to join, you know, America's League in 2020 like i don't care about 2020 it's 2016 by the time we get there he may have ruptured every tendon in his knee and no longer been able to play he may have flat out fallen out of love with football and decided he doesn't want to play anymore he may have um i don't know there could be a million different things that happen between now and then that prevent that that that, that rumor from coming true so while i am hopeful that one day Lionel Messi decides to play in the U.S. before his talents completely disappear. I have no idea if any of there there's smoke to any of that or f- or fire to any of that smoke. All right, all right, man. Sorry, I mean I'm not trying to rain on the parade, Larry. I'm just saying, like, I, you know, if somebody said, you know, if somebody said that Lionel Messi is going to play in in MLS, I'd say when that would be my first question. And then if they say, well, five years, I go. Well, so many things can happen in five years. 
Maybe maybe MLS changes their policies on their salary cap and and doesn't have the money anymore. Maybe China um, becomes even more of a power and they're the ones that sign him up. Maybe again, maybe Lionel Messi decides to pull a, a, a Tevez and go back to Argentina. There's there's a lot of things that are possible, right? All right. Well, thank you. All right. So I feel so bad for Larry. Right. Larry, Larry sounds so sad. Aw. Oh, uh, and see, I mean, to my point, in V406, Messi would only leave Europe to play in Argentina for his childhood team, New Old Boys. Right. I mean, I, I don't know that to be a fact. That's the best guess, and I don't even blame NV406 on Twitter for thinking that, because I'm sure that that's been the, the fairly consistent messaging. But again, so many things can change. I mean, I know this is ridiculous. I know this goes to the beyond the pale of, of, of what we imagine might happen, but MLS could disappear. Hell, the Argentine League could disappear. I mean, there's there's so many things that can happen. There's so many things that can happen. I don't, I don't even begin to to care about something that's five years down the road. You know, if the rumor was Lionel Messi is going to quit Barcelona and join MLS in 2016, I mean 2017, 2018, maybe we would talk about it. I'd still shoot it down, but maybe we talk about it in a serious way. I mean. Trevor's over here telling me it's a possible prank caller. What, what's the prank? If you say, guys, Lionel Messi's coming to the U.S., I'm going to call in soccer morning and, and say that. They're gonna, that's going to be so hilarious. That was hilarious. I don't know. Uh, by the way, U.S. soccer's new crest is official. Uh, it's something about virtual reality and unlaunching it. And we obviously saw the scarves that they sent out that people were getting last week. It's a done deal. It's USA. It's it's red, white stripes. It looks like somebody's pointed out uh, that it, that at least in terms of the font and the USA lettering, that it's very U.S. Uh, Olympic team. So maybe there's some lining those two things up, making a consistent brand for 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 people for teams that are representing the United States. Um. I I I guess it's okay. I guess it's okay. I don't. I mean, it, it, it's being pointed out that it's boring. I guess it's boring, but considering the, how bad the last one was, I don't really care about boring. Boring can mean timeless. Boring can mean it's it it stays relevant for well beyond its original. You know, well beyond any notion of of a uh, a stylistic trend lifespan. I mean. Maybe, maybe it can last. All right. Uh, besides Larry, our caller from Texas, who wanted to somehow make a joke out of Messi, and no, nah, I'm just kidding. I don't. I don't know if Larry was being serious or not. It doesn't really matter because I completely killed the idea. Let's uh, let's let's take our leave here on the Monday. Thank you very much to Christian Hennage for his thoughts on the Premier League, the League Cup final, and Simon Evans from Reuters. Uh, who uh, covered the FIFA presidential election. Lots to, to take in there. Uh, we will continue all these discussions over on Sirius XMFC, Channel 85. If you are a subscriber, if you're not, check it out. Give it a look. Uh, sign up and then tell them that, that, that you signed up because of this show. Yeah. Uh, Cos- just to finish this up, okay? Cosmo Scrouch, do you think the Centennial Badge would have been a better choice? I think that one was more timeless. I, I did like the U.S. Soccer Centennial Batch. The problem, I, as I understand it, and I, may, maybe I'm wrong here. Uh, I, maybe, I, this may be completely, completely wrong. 
but my understanding was that the Centennial badge, in part because of the lack of lettering or anything, and maybe you could have thrown that on there, but the Centennial badge was they they were they would have trouble trademarking it if my understanding is correct because of because of the direct U.S. soccer flag or sorry U.S. soccer U.S. flag American flag imagery. I think there's some provisions within copyright law that say you can't do that. You can't trademark something that is so blatantly the flag. I think. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe they just chose to go in a different direction. I like the Centennial Badge better than the new badge. No no doubt about that, Cosmos Crouch. So it probably would have been a better choice. All right. That's it. We're done. Uh, appreciate uh, appreciate Christian and Simon and our caller. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow when it'll be the first mo- uh, day of March. By the way, happy Leap Day. Happy birthday, Taylor Twelman. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.